Please open your Bibles with me to Mark 9. I think it's on page 977. Mark chapter 9. We look at one of the most pivotal events in Jesus' ministry. The transfiguration. Let's read verses 2 through 13 today. This comes right after, of course, Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ in Caesarea Philippi. Yes, please, let's stand for our scripture reading today. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. Back in those wonderful, calm, quiet days before children, I used to go to the movie theater fairly often one of my favorite places to go. If you've ever gone to the movies with me, you know I have to get there in time to see the previews. I love good movie previews. I'll sit there with my popcorn or my snacks and watch the trivia. But when the, the, the previews come on, my attention is transfixed. Those little snippets of two or three minutes each, we get a, a, a movie trailer that gets us pumped up for the real thing hopefully without giving too much of the plot away, right? In those two or three minutes, the preview delivers a taste of the movie that's to come. And if that taste is good enough, well, then I put that movie on my to-watch list. If I'm with my wife, we'll look over at each other and go, yeah, we should, we should probably see that. That looks good. And then we'll pay attention to it. And my thing will go off. Can you? Can you? you know what? Just turn it off. Turn that to, yeah, there you go. It's okay. That movie trailer will make me anticipate the coming of that film, and I'll start reading up on it, and I'll start paying attention, and looking forward to the day that movie comes out. But as much as I enjoy a good movie preview, it's not quite as satisfying as the real thing. We don't just watch a movie trailer and go, well, I've seen the whole movie. I don't need to see it. It's okay. It isn't the main attraction. That's the point here. It's a glimpse of what's to come. And that's what Jesus really is delivering here with the transfiguration on the top of this mountain. He's giving the apostles a glimpse 
of a coming attraction, a coming attraction here that it might spur the apostles into action. And this is a coming attraction for us as well, because one day we are promised to behold Jesus Christ in all of his glory. But how does that change our lives now? What does this glimpse do for us? Let's dig into this passage here. Thank you. My father-in-law is a pastor. I don't know if you know this. In, in, my, in my family, pastors run thick. And my father-in-law is a pastor in the Assemblies of God Church out in Sacramento. And one of the traditions he has is every Monday morning, he'd get on his motorcycle, he'd leave Sacramento, and he would travel up into the Tahoe Mountains. And there he would park his bike, and he would hike up into the top of whatever random mountain he would like to hike up that day. And then he would just sit there admiring the view. He would often take pictures. And so he would send us back pictures of the great, views that he would, he would look at every Monday morning. On Monday mornings, I go grocery shopping, so we both live lives of adventure, really. But when my father-in-law gets to the top of those mountains, he sends us those, those pictures. What he's trying to convey is that this vista, he just couldn't take his eyes off of it. And some days he would just sit there for a long time just drinking in that beautiful view. He can't take his eyes off of it. And that's probably what Peter, James, and John were thinking when Jesus said, guys, let's go up to the top of this mountain. Let's get a great view of what's around us. And they spend probably most of the day, since they were around Caesarea Philippi, the mountain in question is probably Mount Hermon, which towers 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. Probably took them most of the better part of a day to get to the top as they're puffing and sweating and they get to the top of that mountain, they sit down, and they look out at the country, at Israel, all around them, and they go, this was worth it. This is the view. They just couldn't take their eyes off of it. In fact, Luke tells us that they went up there for the purpose of prayer. And I can't think of a better place to talk to God than on the side of a mountain. And after a while, the scripture tells us that the men, tired from their journey, dozed off, they had a good nap. It's amazing how a napping these disciples get in, in in the Gospels here. And then they wake up and they behold the incredible sight of Jesus transformed. It's here that we have to remember that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just God, but he is God incarnate. He is deity in flesh. And while the disciples had already acknowledged his lordship, they had seen some of the things that they could, he could do. It was something else entirely to see his glory with their own eyes. And that's what this is. It's seeing the glory of Jesus peeking out from beneath the flesh that was encasing it. The text here tries to convey how blinding this was to behold. That to look on Jesus was to behold something dazzling, I think the scripture says here. Something that was whiter than the whitest thing you could possibly imagine. Whiter than my dad dancing, even. That's a dad joke. Never mind. White men dancing right there. Whiter than the whitest thing you could possibly imagine. It was a glory more pure, more innocent, more grand, more overwhelming than even the mountainside view that they had just looked on. These men couldn't take their eyes off of Jesus. They didn't want to. They wanted to drink in this glory that they saw. We know that from the Bible, that the radiant glory of God is always marked by an intensity so unbearable 
that sinful people can usually barely look upon it, if at all. In Exodus 34, Moses returned from another mountain after speaking with God. And it said, the passage said there, when, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. The only thing I can think of is if you were in a dark room or a cave for a very long time and suddenly you came out into the noon sun. And you, your eyes are squinting, you're trying to adjust, you're trying to drink in so much brightness all at once that you can't even take it in. Even a reflection of God's glory is too much for the Israelites to handle. That was just a reflection. Here, the apostles aren't getting a reflection. They're getting the full blast of Jesus' glory. John 1.14 introduces Jesus by saying this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was talking literally there. He had seen Jesus' glory, and he was still so excited about it when he wrote his gospel. That was one of the first things he had to say. In that glory, John said, his glory pointed to Jesus' nature and his origin. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. That is who he is. So here in this transfiguration, this metamorphosis, Jesus confirms physically the deity that Peter pronounced just a week before. This is who Jesus truly is. And the three apostles here, the inner core, are given a preview, a glimpse of the coming attraction. Not just to say, oh, here's something cool, but to actually encourage them for the journey that is to come, the hard road that they must walk down. One day soon, they would all be persecuted for their faith. James and Peter on that mountain would die for their faith in Jesus Christ. But they didn't turn away from it because all three of them wanted that main attraction that they just got a glimpse of that day. They wanted to see that glory one more time. If just for a moment, but Jesus promised them it wouldn't be a moment. It would be an eternity. This is the Christ we will see one day when we come into his kingdom. It will be such a view. That, that glory, that vision that we get, gives us encouragement now for the goal we're straining toward, the day that we will see Christ's glory. It will be brighter than anything. And that glimpse that we're being shared with today, it may be secondhand. We're not sitting here in this church beholding Jesus' glory, but we are reading about it from the people who were there. And let me tell you, they, they were so excited about it. They wanted you to be excited too. And I think that, that encourages us on those days that we look around at a dark world. We say, why bother? Why should I keep on going? Why does it feel like I'm just stumbling from one tri uh, trial, one, from one problem to the next? And Jesus goes, because one day you will behold my glory. And you'll say that makes it worthwhile. As wild and overwhelming as the transfiguration was, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier in this passage because Moses and Elijah suddenly appear. Now ask yourself, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They didn't have pictures. 
Moses had been dead for 1,400 years at this point. Elijah had been gone, taken up to heaven, for 900 years. Obviously, there's some recognition. Maybe Jesus turned around and said, Hey, Peter, James, and John, come over here. I want to introduce you. This is Moses, you know, hero of your faith, and Elijah. It must have been so surreal. Imagine coming down to breakfast tomorrow, rubbing the, the sleep out of your eyes, and there's Abraham Lincoln and Joan of Arc sitting at your breakfast table, just talking all casual. And you go, what? What is this madness? It's crazy. We know from Luke that Moses and Elijah were not there for the apostles. They actually came to talk to Jesus. They were there to give Jesus encouragement for the road ahead. You see, after this moment, when they walked down this mountain, Jesus is now officially on a journey to the cross. Jesus knows it. He's obviously been prophesying it again and again. And it's weighing upon his soul. So Moses and Elijah come down. The law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And they, best of all, know the purpose of the Messiah. And so the law and the prophet come down to give Jesus encouragement, to urge him on, say, what you are doing is worth it, Jesus. Keep going. Keep pushing forward. When you get to those hard days, the days where they're whipping you, when they're cursing you, when they're nailing you to the cross, remember you are coming for these people that you are pulling out of bondage and you are leading out of an exodus, out into freedom. And then, as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't already the most insane thing that had happened, one more amazing thing happens. God the Father descends upon the top of this mountain in his Shekinah cloud of glory. And through that cloud, we hear, for only the second of three times in the Gospels, the voice of God the Father speaking, urging the apostles to listen, to hear Jesus and listen to his direction. And this event obviously made this day made a huge impact on the life of Peter because not only did he share this account with Mark, but in his own epistle in 2 Peter, the apostle wrote these words. He said, we, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. God the Father is lending all of his authority, all of his glory to the Son commanding the apostles and us to hear him. The Son here speaks for the Father, and as such we can trust, we can believe, and we can obey every word that he utters. And as, as the words of Elijah and Moses were encouraging Jesus, were keeping him focused on his purpose, the Father tells us that Jesus' words encourage us and keep us focused on our mission. It's easy to stray in our lives. It's easy to get lost in our own, in our own world when we, we look for direction. When we make the thousands of choices that we do each and every week. It's tempting to listen to the voices of others. As they say, listen to my wisdom. Listen to where I think you should go. 
Instead, we should always be listening to the Lord. Because Jesus will give us unfiltered truth and clarity and direction. Stay focused by listening to Jesus. Now, I am starting to worry that my brother Jared, who is another pastor, is starting to dread Fridays. You see, Fridays are the day that I do my sermon preparation, where I do my research, and I'll spend the morning locked in my office researching the, the scriptures. And usually I'll come across a, an interesting theological question in my studies, or maybe something that confuses me. And when that happens, when I exhaust all my resources, I'll pick up the phone and I'll call my brother. So I start to wonder if he, he sees my phone number come up, and he knows, oh, He's in for another half an hour of theological questioning as we go back and forth, chewing over a passage together, debating Scripture. He hasn't ducked my calls yet, so I'm hoping it's not a bad thing. But I think it's great for us as Christians to have that attitude, to not just be reading the Word of God, but to be digging into it, to be debating back and forth. It's one of the most encouraging things about this church, how many of you, Go to Bible studies here and and Sunday school here and have your small groups and just get into the Word of God with each other. And maybe you're confused over a passage, but you talk about it. You want to grow in your faith through those discussions. If this is the Word of God, if we are instructed by God to hear this Word that Jesus told us, then there must be a great benefit in doing so. It's hard to tell what headspace Peter, James, and John were that moment when they started going back down the mountain is probably radically different than when they had gone up. But we know that from that incredible experience, we see something actually kind of encouraging about these three future leaders of the church, that the three of them are actively discussing and trying to figure out the prophetic words of Scripture and those of Jesus. They're having a Bible study on the way down. They want to know what this rising of the dead means that Jesus keeps talking about. Because no Jew up to that point had ever thought of of resurrection happening within history, just always at the end of it. But Jesus has been talking about it happening within, so they want to know what that is. Then they're they're confused over whether or not Elijah was still going to come again, that Elijah that they just saw, if he was going to come again or if he already did. So we see these men fresh off of seeing God's glory and hearing God's voice, enthusiastic about digging into God's word and defining the truth. And that, to me, shows growth. That shows that they're taking steps forward. They asked their teacher for illumination the way that I call up my brother some of those Fridays. And Jesus feels that question, and he tells them that John the Baptist was indeed the one prophesied about in Malachi to come forward and prophesy and proclaim in the spirit and power of Elijah. But then as they reach the foot of the mountain, Jesus then turns around and poses his own question back to them. He says this, Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Now one thing I've learned from taking courses on teaching, from observing very effective teachers, is that a good educator doesn't just give point-blank answers to everything. A good educator, a good teacher, will hear somebody asking a question, then they'll turn around and they'll ask questions of their students because they want their students to dig into things, to figure things out for themselves. Because when that that realization comes, 
it makes a bigger difference. It makes a more profound impact on the student. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. When he answers their question about Elijah, and then he turns around and he says, guys, since you're already trying to understand the prophets, what about this other prophecy about me? Why does it say that I must suffer and be rejected? They start thinking about that and talking about that. Jesus points to the Bible and tells the disciples, go read it. Not just read it, not surface read it, but study it. Dig into it. Figure it out. It already took them this long to figure out and understand who Jesus was. Now Jesus wants them to look at the scriptures and figure out what he is going to do. And that's going to take some work before the connection is made. And it takes work for us, too. R.C. Sproul once said that we fail in our duty to study God's Word. Not so much because the Bible is difficult to understand. Not so much because it's boring and dull. But because it is work. Because our problem is not because we have a lack of intelligence or lack of passion. Our problem is that we're lazy. We're lazy. We read the Bible on a very surface level. And we don't just stop and really dig in to what it is. I don't want to be lazy. I don't want to be one of those people that we see in Revelation. There are a lukewarm church that's a church that's not really getting into the scriptures and figuring out things. And I don't think you want to be seen as lazy by God either. We should never be satisfied when we're confused by a passage and go, oh, well, let's move on. I want us to stop and figure it out. I, won't, I don't want us to be ignorant when it comes to God's word and not be able to piece it together so that we can share it with others. It does my heart good when I see those of us here studying the Scriptures, not just reading it, but studying it, not just on Sunday morning, but all week long. I hope we never stop in this good work of unfolding the Scriptures to see all those connections. You ever get that jolt of excitement when one part of the Scripture and you see it connect to another, and then you go, oh, where's more like that? How do all these things piece together? And it gets you more excited to read Scripture. Or where you read a passage of Scripture, and you realize God is talking to you personally through that passage. And God's Word is coming alive to you. That's so exciting. It makes you want to read and study more. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ may have just been a preview of great things to come. A pre- preview of the main attraction. But even as a preview... It still functions to encourage us in our spiritual life to keep us focused on what is really important and to challenge us to dig into the scriptures every day to see what Jesus has to say to us. After all, what did God say? Hear him. Let us hear Jesus Christ this week. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your words. Thank you for this glimpse of your glory. Lord, we cannot wait for the day that we get to behold you with our own eyes. Not just, not just a taste of that, but to be able to be in your presence as, as we heard that song, to walk with you and talk with you and hear from your voice that we are your own and to see your majesty and your glory. Please encourage those here. Help us to keep going forward in this journey. Now, Lord, one day at the end of it is all worthwhile because we will be with you. In your name, amen. Please pray with me and receive the benediction. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.